Thank you very much. Uh, thanks to John and, and to Wynn and for everyone for inviting me and setting this up. I'm uh, excited to, to talk about Herman Melville today. It's actually a figure I haven't talked about in, in quite a while, so, and I'll get to that in a second. So let's get going. Hopefully those of you in the back can read. If you can't read this size, this is the size of most of these slides, so you might want to move forward. I wasn't expecting quite such a long room. but. Um, on the first page of Herman Melville's novel, Redburn, his narrator, Wellingborough Redburn, love that name, notes that for months previous to his first voyage, he had been poring over old New York papers, delightedly perusing the long columns of ship advertisements, all of which possessed a strange romantic charm to me. Such romantic charms are cast by small and unassuming texts such as this one, for Bremen, the coppered and copper-fastened brig Lida, having nearly completed her cargo, will sail for the above port on Tuesday, the 20th of May. For freight and passage, apply on board at Coenties Slip. Such texts suggested volumes of thought to the narrator's young and inland imagination. In the paragraphs following this, he dissects each phrase of the advertisement, expounding on the ways that his imagination builds complex narratives from this terse, business-like prose. For instance, from the advertisement's final line uh, for freight and passage, apply on board, he expounds, think of going aboard a coppered and copper-fastened brig and taking passage to Bremen. And who could be going to Bremen? No one but foreigners, doubtless, men of dark complexions and jet black whiskers who talked French. <laughs> For a young and provincial Redburn, the newspaper connects him to wider worlds of commerce, travel, and mythology. It's a material and temporal object that instantiates both geography and a kind of literature reality and imagination. I should stop briefly here and offer a confession. I would not call myself a Melville scholar. This would likely seem an ironic confession for any students who have chatted with me during my office hours as my favorite poster loomed behind my head, explored or even helped create the, the Moby Dick paraphernalia festooned around my office or browsed my shelf of Moby Dick editions including, of course, the wonderful pop-up version <laughs> and Moby Dick or the card game. Moby Dick is, in short, one of my favorite books to read and teach, and probably the book that convinced me as a young graduate student to work on the mid-19th century rather than the mid-20th, as I had planned when I started grad school. But despite my affection for Melville, I've rarely approached him in my research. So when I was invited to give this talk, I was excited to have an inducement to redress this lack. We had, in the Viral Text Project, developed sophisticated text mining algorithms for identifying reprinted text across historical periodicals archives. And we were using those methods to uncover nearly two million reprinted texts from the Library of Congress's newspaper and magazine collections. These viral texts were prompting me to think in new ways about popular reading and writing during the period. And I was excited to place Melville within this milieu, to ask which of his texts spread the most widely, and to think through why. 
Short answer, this is probably the one that spread the most widely, mm -hmm. but we'll qualify that really heavily in a second. The lightning rod man. Uh, everyone knows the lightning rod man? Right. Probably not. Okay. <laughs> All right. So many people in this room will know the lightning rod man, <laughs> but I suspect if we expand it a bit more broadly, they would not. All right. So really briefly, I want to just talk about 19th century newspapers and the viral text project, and then I'm going to sort of turn back towards the, the central ideas here. Um, Many of you have probably spent time with 19th century newspapers, but if you haven't, uh, it's worth noting that they don't look or act very much like modern newspapers. They're not like the New York Times of today, right? They do include things that we would recognize, news, right? This is a report of a speech. They do uh, include things like uh, op-ed pieces, right? These are, again, familiar. There are still those who would sell the birthright of our nation's glory for a mess of official pottage, right? So think of Fox News, think of MSNBC, there you go, right? Okay. They also included an awful lot of very small tidbits of information. These are sort of tweet-sized uh, bits of news from around the country. They included things, uh, anecdotes. These are, these are the kinds of things that today you would immediately go to Snopes and see if they were real or not. They sort of tread the line between fact and fiction. These are incredibly common in 19th century newspapers. They would also have included things that were ostensibly fiction, serialized novels, short stories, right, entertainment. And they would have almost inevitably included poetry. Right? Most 19th century newspapers would have printed poetry. The other thing to know about 19th century newspapers is the way that content um, spread. I realize this is quite small on this scre screen. But the way that newspapers were composed is that if I was an editor <laughs> in a rural newspaper office, I would subscribe to other newspapers around the country. And I would pay, well, for a long time in the 19th century, I would pay no postage for those newspapers. Eventually, I would pay a modest amount of postage for those newspapers. And when they came in, I would comb through them, and I would clip out things that I thought my readers would be interested in, or things that were the right length to fit a gap in the page that I was putting together, right? I would also throw away things that I didn't think my readers would be all that interested in, right? But I would hand those to my compositors. They would set the type, right? And many 19th century newspapers are comprised primarily of content from other newspapers. They were more aggregators than producers of original content. And often, they were created by very small staffs. So actually, you know, scholars like Ellen Gruber Garvey have sort of shown that this kind of aggregation is, in fact, what allowed newspapers to spread as rapidly as they did during the 19th century, because you did not have to produce the whole thing, right? The challenge with accessing reprinting, right? Initially, the challenge is, is this, right? If I want to trace the way that a particular story has moved around the country, then I have to read all of the newspapers and index them, right? Um, and the fact is that there are not really extensive indexes of newspapers because there's just so darn many of them. I mean, it's, it's a problem of, of quantity. Once we get to the digitized archive, we can do things like search, right? But actually, search is not even ideal for getting at this problem of reprinting because you can't do this, right? <laughs> Search only allows you to find more of the things you already know you're looking for, right? So if I know that a particular story was reprinted, then I can search for key <laughs> phrases from it and I can find more copies, right? But it doesn't allow me to get at the things that were widely reprinted that we don't know about anymore, right? 
what we really wanted to do in viral text was to be able to know without having a sort of a, a base text a priori that that and that and that are actually the same thing right and so this was a problem that I took to David Smith who's a colleague in our computer science department and for him it was a very interesting computational problem can we identify patterns of reprinting across this archive without a kind of base text so we're just trying to find the duplicates right and I had the additional benefit of the OCR, the actual text data, being really, really messy. Right? And this is actually pretty clean. I tried to find uh, the lightning rod man, and I was actually a little upset because most of the reprints of the lightning rod man, the OCR, was not terrible. Not as bad as it usually is. But you can see, right, uh, what grand irregular tabund thought I, standing on my hurl stone, <laughs> right? So when the newspapers are scanned, the computer's trying to automatically recognize the words, and it makes a lot of mistakes. Right? For us, this is a, a problem, but I will say I probably don't get to collaborate with a computer scientist on this, on this project if the data is not so messy. Right? This makes it an interesting computational problem and one that David wants to work on. We also don't quite know where the texts begin and end because the texts are changing. The texts are changing in the 19th century because as editors reprint them, they're taking out a word here, they're adding a word there, they're taking out a line to make it fit. They're taking out a line that would be too offensive to their readers. Right? They're doing all kinds of uh, changing of the text. And then, again, we change them in the 20th and 21st century by scanning them and OCRing them. So they're not identical from end to end. We don't quite know where they start and end. And there's also other kinds of reprinting. There's not only whole reprinting. There's excerpting, right? things of that nature. So this is the additional thing that we're, tr we're trying to solve. I'm not going to get down into the weeds here, but basically the way that we do this is by breaking the entire archive up into n-grams. n-grams are sequences of n words. We found a lot of success using five grams, which are sequences of five words. Her Majesty dears to congratulate. Majesty dears to congratulate the. Dears to congratulate the president. Um, this is actually uh, 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 the announcement of the completion of the transatlantic cable. You guys have at MIT, you've got this exhibit I walked by when I came on the uh, telegraph, right? When the telegraph's completed, Queen Victoria sends a message to President James Buchanan congratulating him on this achievement. Um, and this is one of the most widely reprinted pieces that we found in the entire century. Um, so anyway, breaking the whole thing up into n-grams, five grams, and it's looking for sequences on these different pages that have enough matching five grams. And when I say enough, this is a kind of dial we can turn. We can say fewer matching, more. <laughs> And when it sees that they have enough, it spits it out as a possible match, right? I think these two texts are the same on this newspaper page and this newspaper page. Then you've got a big list of all these individual pairs that might be the same. And then the next step is that it goes back through those and tries to put them all together into groups. I think these 35 are all the same. I think these 40, I think these 240 are all the same text. And what we end up with are clusters of text, and you can see that they are not the same from end to end, but basically they share enough internal similarities that the algorithm is able to recognize that they are the same thing, right? There are plenty of false positives, which we can talk about uh, uh, later if folks want to, and ways that we try to sort of work through that. And here's just, an, and this is four out of, this is a much larger cluster, but I can't show you the whole thing, it's, it's enormous. Um, this is a uh, story by the, the temperance writer T.S. Arthur, who was a very popular temperance writer at the time. 
I'm not going to get into it too much today, but one of the things that I've been doing is trying to take this reprinting uh, data and use it to get a sense of influence among newspapers during the 19th century. So using shared text to try and see which newspapers were printing the things that the most other newspapers were reprinting um, and what kinds of connections we might be able to infer among different newspapers based on how often they share reprints with one another. Right? That two newspapers happen to reprint one thing in common tells us almost nothing. But if they happen to reprint 10,000 things in common, this is a connection that's worth exploring. Right? It's worth digging into a bit more. But I'm not going to talk about this today. I just had to find a way to work this graphic in, basically. <laughs> that's all it really is. I'll zoom around a little bit. If you want to talk about Nashville, I'm fascinated by Nashville right now. But we'll get to that later. Right. This is what the data actually looks like. Right? Okay. So, what does such, such a project teach us about the 19th century or about the methods through which we approach the 19th century? As an opening gambit, I want to suggest that our accounts of reprinting thus far and replication more broadly in literary criticism have been hampered by the scale of our textual address and by critical frameworks that we have inherited whether consciously or unconsciously, enthusiastically or reluctantly, from traditional bibliography and critical editing. Faced with the messy and circuitous scene of a newspaper text reprinting, we tend to mark editors' additions and subtractions as errata or paratext, but not parts of the text proper. John Bryant's idea of the fluid text provides a useful push against these tendencies and has been very influential to our work on viral texts which is attempting to grapple with even slipper, slipperier, I shouldn't have written that word, slipperier, assemblages of text, excerpt, and even parody. Often uh, parodies of works will get bundled into the cluster of works because it shares enough internal similarity that it, the, the algorithm sees it as the same. We call these assemblages clusters, pointing to the replicative core that makes them identifiable as the same thing. They must share enough words in a similar enough order to be identified as matching. But for the algorithm to work, it also has to account for frequent and substantial differences among these matched texts. This unstructured bottom-up approach to the newspaper has proven remarkably generative leading for me to a more capacious understanding of what Americans were reading and writing during the period. I find myself mostly thinking and writing about travel accounts, squibs, scientific reports, religious exhortations, temperance narratives, self-help columns, trivia, recipes, and even, to borrow a modern internet term, listicles. If you think BuzzFeed invented the listicle, you haven't spent enough time with 19th century newspapers because they're everywhere. All of which juxtaposed with poems, stories, and news on the page of the 19th century paper. As a general rule, the most frequently reprinted pieces are concise, quotable, widely relatable texts that would have been easy to recontextualize for different audiences and that could easily fit gaps on the newspaper's page as editors and compositors needed. These realities have shifted my view of more familiar literature to account for a broader and messier ecology of mass network print culture. To put this in concrete terms, while Herman Melville is the locus of attention for Mel and uh, loci for much C-19 literary scholarship, he barely registers in the 19th century of viral text. Texts from Melville's novels, stories, and poems comprise vanishingly few 
of the 1.7 million clusters of reprinted texts that we have thus far uncovered. Certainly, if I were to focus on texts that I would call widely reprinted, those that appear in at least 10 to 20% of the corpora, and I'm being, a, I'm, I'm being generous because I felt bad about this part of my talk, <laughs> we wouldn't find Melville at all. He wouldn't be there. Of course, accounts of Melville's unpopularity are hardly new, and I don't want to simply reiterate them. Instead, I hope in the remainder of my time to mark some possible intersections between Melville and this alternative textual milieu founded on transmission, replication, and reception. I want to focus on two common modes of viral newspaper literature that might seem on the surface at odds with one another. I'm going to call these the anecdotal and the informational. We know that the plural of anecdote is not data, and we know that raw data is an oxymoron from Lisa Gittleman's work. But in the ecology of the 19th century newspaper, both interesting anecdotes, what we might also call narrative, and useful information defined popular newspaper selections, and indeed often coexisted within the same snippets. I would argue that we can find these same modes opposed, not opposed, but opposed. I should really write for speaking. Uh, uh, in much of Melville's writing, and that the continuum between anecdote and information is perhaps where we see his closest affiliation with the mass medium of his time. Right, so, we will start with the anecdotal. I realize I don't have... Oh, brilliant, okay. Hmm? Well, because I pushed up, my clock is way back there now, so I was just... It's fine. I'm good. I'll check. All right. So the anecdotal. The anecdotal pervades a host of newspaper genres, but I want to exemplify it in this talk with the fugitive poem. This is a genre that Abby Mullen and I, uh, Abby is a history PhD student who's an RA on the project, have been thinking and writing about lately. So it's just, it's very much on my mind right now. And this section of the talk, you should, you should consider this work both mine and Abby's because we've really composed this together part of a paper, basically, yeah, all right. So to start us thinking about these fugitive verses, consider the Burlington Free Press's introduction to what they call a charming little fugitive somnambulist wandering about the newspaper world. Or the Coconino Sons, uh, one of the joys of doing this work is all of these great newspaper names. The Coconino Sons declaration that the popular poem, There Is No Death, was, quote, a fugitive poem that many authors claim. In the Viral Text Project, we found a great many accounts of fugitive poems and fugitive verses in 19th century newspapers, most often used to describe texts whose authorship was subject to some dispute as they circulated, and indeed where active narrations of authorship constituted a vital component of their circulation and reception. Fugitive is an evocative word here. In the definition most familiar from political and legal discourse, as in the Fugitive Slave Act, which is contemporaneous to this, what we're talking about, calling a verse fugitive implies that it has escaped its owner, that it's on the lamb. In the 19th century, however, other meanings also pertain to fugitive. Something fugitive could be evanescent or fleeting. While a fugitive bit of writing could be ephemeral, or occasional. When 19th century editors deemed poems fugitive, I think they evoked both of these meanings, simultaneously implying that such pieces were of limited interest, while enhancing their appeal 
by introducing myths of their widespread and disputed circulation. So I want to highlight today the function of these authorial anecdotes in driving the popularity of fugitive poems. And I, I keep saying, I keep giving you numbers. I've got three really brief case studies, and then we're going to sort of move on, right? Case study one, the Lincoln bump. <laughs> All right, so we're going to start with the poem Mortality, which was written by the Scottish poet William Knox and published in his 1824 book, Songs of Israel. In the 1830s, 40s, and 50s, mortality was reprinted in a few US newspapers and magazines and was generally attributed to Knox in those early reprintings. However, the poem's bibliography was relatively muted, as was Knox's career. He died young and quite obscure in 1825. All of this changed in 1861, when the periodical press began crafting two closely related myths about the poem. The first, which we can see in this issue of the Saturday Evening Post, claimed that the poem had been written by, quote, Abraham Lincoln, Esquire of Illinois, now President of the United States, an attribution that was printed in a number of poems, while the second myth, which you're not going to be able to read too well here, insisted only that the poem was a particular favorite of Lincoln's. This second myth grew substantially beginning the week of Lincoln's assassination. And the poem itself is a reflection on mortality, right? So this, this makes some sense. And indeed, a much longer anecdote developed around mortality, claiming that Lincoln had recited the poem by heart to the painter Francis Bicknell Carpenter, the artist of the famous painting of the Declaration, or sorry, of the signing of the Emancipation Proclamation with which I started this section, while Lincoln was sitting for the portrait. So this anecdote fit both rhetorically and emotionally with all the other material that was appearing in the newspapers following Lincoln's death. And though mortality had been in print since the 1820s, it was this Lincoln bump, as it were, that brought it out of obscurity in the 1860s and into a kind of lasting fame. And even today, mortality most often gets mentioned in connection with Lincoln, including in the second line of William Knox's quite modest Wikipedia page. <laughs> when considered an aggregate as, an, as a, an event spread over decades, we can certainly argue that mortali mortality is as much Lincoln's poem as Knox's. 19th century readers encountered it far more often as a telling biographical detail about President Lincoln than by, as a poem by an obscure Scottish poet. And this reality shaped their understanding of both its message and its significance. Case study one. So next I want to talk about the children. I want to think of the children, which begins with this stanza. When the lessons and tasks are all ended and the school for the day is dismissed and the little ones gather around me to bid me good night and be kissed, etc. <laughs> so this is of course, this is of course an apt description of how my classes end each day. Uh, if these lines are unfamiliar to you, though, I suspect you're not alone. You will not find this poem in any Norton anthology, to my knowledge. However, the, the Children was an extremely popular poem in its day. It was anthologized in period poetry volumes. It was praised by critics, poets, and readers. And it was widely reprinted in newspapers and magazines. The poem was written by Charles M. Dickinson. You can already maybe see where this is going a lawyer, newspaper editor, and a poet in New York in the latter half of the 19th century. And this was by far the most popular thing that he would write in a very long career. 
He published it in a collection called The Schoolgirl's Garland in 1864. And it circulated in new US newspapers, either under his name or under his uh, moniker, which was the village schoolmaster. There's one with his name. In August of 1868, however, we see the New Orleans Crescent attributes the poem to famous British novelist and magazine editor Charles Dickens. And after this misattribution appears, this is going to be hard for you to see in the back, but um, let this go. After this misattribution appears, newspapers overwhelmingly attribute the poem to Dickens. Um, I didn't bring the exact numbers, but it's something like 85% of the attributions will be Dickens after that initial mistake. Indeed, a brief but persistent narrative began to grow up, began to grow up around the poem after Dickens' death in June of 1870. As newspapers began prefacing the poem with either the late Charles Dickens or found among the papers of Charles Dickens after his death. And this is by far the most pervasive anecdote about this poem that was found in the desk of Dickens after his death, which lends an air of mystery and discovery to the text. While this misattribution may have originated in a careless compositor's error, as the magazine of poetry claimed in an 1891 biography of Dickinson, ultimately the anecdote was more compelling than the real attribution. And in fact, Dickinson basically spent his entire life trying to convince people that this was actually his poem. Um, and in one edition of his poetry, he reprinted a letter from Charles Dickens' son saying, this was not my father's poem. He never wrote it. We did not find it in his desk. And people didn't care. The, the Wheeling Daily Intelligencer reprinted the poem at least three times. In March of 1869, they printed it as Dickens. Dickens, Charles these are so similar. Then in June 1870, they corrected it with a long, uh, a, a long introduction that said, actually, we've realized this is actually the production of Charles M. Dickinson of New York, before reprinting it again in November of 1872, where they once again said it was Dickens, right? In other words, most 19th century readers of the children encountered it in their local newspapers and understood it as a late or even deathbed composition by Charles Dickens. And this manufactured narrative, I would argue, constitutes an essential part of the poem's social text. All right, so, number three. The textual situation of this last one is the messiest of the three. This poem is most often titled Beautiful Snow, though the first reprinting that we have identified calls it Once I Was Pure. This title hints at the primary motif in which a fallen woman meditates on the falling snow, which is as pure as she once was, and in typical 19th century fashion, as pure as she will be once she is buried beneath it. A true fugitive, Beautiful Snow, became through its circulation not only a popular poem, but the subject of intense debate among editors, readers, and critics. Some newspapers prefaced it with stories of a famous actress who they occasionally named as Dora Shaw, who penned it after falling from wealth and society. Others wrote that William Sigourney penned the poem after his wife was unfaithful to him as a kind of literary payback. Still other newspapers, less enticingly, attribute it to respected editor Henry Faxon, although I will say most of the ones that do that just say Henry Faxon. There's not a long explanation. 
few newspapers printed the poem alone. It was printed with increasingly lengthy introductions that both staked claims of the text's authorship and defended those claims against other claims. And I will say that what's interesting here is there's a clear idea, not only that editors are disputing this, but that the readers are aware of the dispute because editors are talking back to their readers in these introductions saying, many of you have told us that it was this actress, but actually it was Henry Faxon or whoever. The most widely circulated anecdote about this poem's composition claimed that it had been discovered after the death of an unnamed prostitute in a hospital in Cincinnati early in the Civil War. A story that cannot be true, given that the poem began circulating many, many years before the war even began. These are just a few of the myths that editors promulgated and disputed around this poem, which is, in many ways, a typical example of fugitive poetry. It was reshaped and contextualized through circulation, revision, and even active myth-making by editors. The most salient point I want to make here is that debate about the poem's authorship became as important to its circulation as the poem itself. The dispute over the author's identity and the, auth the authenticity that that identity might lend to the poem's sentiment seems not a consequence but a cause of readers' interest in this poem. All right, so here's the moment where I'm going to try and turn towards Melville, right? And all the Melville scholars in the room, please do forgive me. But, all right. Sorry, that was my chart of... The Cincinnati prostitute clearly wins out. And, and actually, the one person I didn't talk about, James W. Watson, is the guy who probably actually did write the poem based on our uh, investigation. We find it in a book by him before any of these others. So I think that's probably, probably the case. Yeah. All right. So I think that we might identify a similar kind of myth-making around Melville's most successful works in the press, Taipei and Omu. Uncertainty about the relationship between Melville, the author's book, and Melville, the sailor's experiences generated much debate about the veracity of this text and its depiction of both Pacific Islanders and Western missionaries. Here, for instance, we see Melville's not uninteresting book attributed to a clever Yankee sailor who was a runaway from a whaler and who, to this editor's delight, critiques the, quote, mongrel cart and carriage equipages of Honolulu's ladies. Just weeks later, however, we can see the same Polynesian, which is the name of the newspaper, noting that, quote, a doubt has existed on the part of some reviewers whether a residence in the Marquesas, which is actually, that's the subtitle of the book, but what's striking to me is almost all the newspapers, when they cite this text, cite the subtitle, not the, not the title. Um, that seems to be how they want to pitch it. Um, that this is, quote, the genuine production of the reputed author. They're disputing this. And only one month later, the Polynesian cites, quote, a specimen of nautical oratory which fell from the lips of a whaling captain. And they're quoting from Taipei, although they don't actually name the book in this case. No, sorry, they do. Sorry, that's a different one where they don't name the book. I apologize. Um, staking the reliability of this transcript on the author's supposed immediate experience of nautical life. Now, scholars have frequently discussed the ways that Taipei was pitched as an authentic travel narrative, but debates around Melville's authorial claim might be understood in relationship to practices of authorial myth-making in the popular press. In short, Melville's most reprinted text actively played into common rhetorical structures of the newspaper, fostering both the puffery and the critique that kept the text alive, which is to say that kept bits of it circulating. 
This same snippet actually begins to get us toward the second feature of newspaper virality that I want to highlight today. These authorial anecdotes foster an idea of authenticity or truth around the fugitive poems or typee, marking the novel as a container of information rather than invention, a feature which fosters excerpting. The excerpted speech of a whaling captain from Taipei is framed in the newspaper as a specimen, a kind of ethnographic peek into a particular culture. In many ways, this aligns with the genres of reprinting that I've been calling information literature. It's one of the most striking uh, findings in the study for me has been the degree to which we find lists and tables and scientific reports and trivia columns and so forth widely reprinted in the newspaper. So here's um, one example of information literature, a list of supposed facts. And in some instances, this was structured as a list. In others, it was in this kind of paragraph form. Supposed facts about human lives and demographics, which was published under many names in at least 120 different newspapers during the 19th century, which is approximately one-fifth of the newspapers that we're studying in the Chronicling America collection. The specific facts changed as the piece moved around the country, uh, often in ways that make it clear none of them can be right because they change so often. Um, but the basic structure remained the same through decades of circulation. Um, so, I mean, what kinds of things am I talking about with information literature? This is another piece on the same newspaper page that's just a list of the dimensions of lakes in the United States, right? This is what I'm talking about. These are, I don't quite know what to do with these as a literary historian. It's one reason why I'm so fascinated by them. Um, I'm just going to sort of walk through some examples here. Here, a list of how old animals get to be, <laughs> right? I told you lists are really popular in these... Uh, and actually, this one, uh, I think I picked this because it mentions a whale at one point, which I thought was apropos. Um, a cure for smallpox. Lots of like home remedies, cures of various sorts that are widely circulated. The, oh, this is one of my favorites. The properties of the tomato. This is basically a piece that's, that's attributed to a doctor, which is trying to convince uh, Americans that not only are tomatoes not poisonous, but they actually can taste okay if you, <laughs> if you cook them correctly. Um, this is a list of supposed sort of wrong things people are doing to try and be healthy, right? I can, again, imagine plenty of my friends posting this on Facebook today or something <laughs> like it, right? Um, ancient antiquities, again, this is a list of uh, ancient monuments and how big they were, right? It's kind of raw information in a very uh, fascinating way to me. This is a description of uh, physiology, right? How many muscles men have, like how they work, etc. If you need paste that will keep for a year, there you are. I have a recipe for you. Weights and measures, how many things are in a bushel of various kinds of commodities, right? This says the philosophy of rain, but it's using philosophy in a kind of old-fashioned sense. This is really like, how does it rain? It's a scientific description of how rain happens, basically. So I know that we're, we're getting, huh? Yeah, we have till seven. Well, I don't want to keep you here for that long. <laughs> sure, sure. Okay, well, I'm, I'm moving toward the end, but I'm trying to pace myself, okay. So depending on exactly how one categorizes particular texts, this kind of stuff, information literature, comprises somewhere between 20 and 25% 
of the most frequently reprinted pieces in our study. The popularity of such snippets no doubt stems in part from their malleability. A squib of interesting statistics requires little to no context and could help a compositor fill a small gap on the page. And certainly, such pieces were, to some extent, filler. Right? I don't want to diminish that. But as an entire explanation, I find this too tidy. For one, I think that such a reading, reading misses the value that period editors placed on savvy selection, as you can see in comments such as these. Perhaps more, though, I think these pieces also instantiate the newspaper's emerging role as an information broker in 19th century America. We might think of the newspaper's information literature as a kind of serialized and communally offered, authored compendium of useful knowledge, drawing from and contributing to related uh, genres of the book, such as the journal or the encyclopedia, which are not new to the 19th century, but are newly widely available. Right? They're increasingly markers of middle class life. We might indeed think of the newspaper's information literature. Oh, I'm repeating myself there. I don't want to do that again. All right. In fact, we see the newspaper stake such claims explicitly in pieces such as this, in which uh, supposedly Judge Longstreet, although this becomes Daniel Webster in a few mm -hmm. tellings, it's no longer Judge Longstreet, just to return <laughs> to what we were talking about before, um, in which the paper is described as a history of current events that gives students, in particular, with access to the newspaper, a command of more facts, thus improving their schoolwork and prospects. And actually, this is almost a subgenre in, in and of itself, these uh, little pieces that are talking about the value of newspapers, particularly for uh, students. And obviously, there's a self-serving thing going on here, right? Newspapers talking about how great they are. But I do find them interesting. The information literature in American newspapers stemmed from and contributed to the industrialization of knowledge during the 19th century. In large part, antebellum newspaper reprinting privileged texts for their edification or their usefulness to readers, an observation which aligns with Franco Moretti's positioning of usefulness as a central value to middle class culture during the period. Useful knowledge can be operationalized. The informational snippets in newspapers, I think, operate in two distinct ways. In some cases, they direct physical work, as in the recipe for starch. You can now make starch. You can now make paste. In other cases, I think they provide functional signals of broad education, as in the list of uh, statistics or, or historical tidbits. I think they give you things to talk about to sort of signal how uh, educated you are, right? They're useful, in other words, as aids to the, re the rhetoric and appropriate interest of middle-class social and professional life. And in that latter function, I would draw a connection with other print genres of Michelinie, not new to the 19th century, but increasingly industrialized and available. And perhaps with Melville. All right, so here we go, second time. Melville's informational aesthetic. So I think that we can mark an informational mode or an informational aesthetic at work, in, certainly in Melville's travel narratives. So one thing that is striking, when newspapers reprinted from Taipei or Omu, they rarely printed whole chapters or whole scenes. Right? In instead, they selected brief ethnographic sections focused on specific aspects of Marquesan or Polynesian culture. Right? There are a lot of them that reprint uh, descriptions of swimming, right, for instance, or tattooing. Right? Descriptions of how tattooing works. Or here, I don't quite know what to call this, but this is, a, a, this is the section when the islanders first see a horse. 
It's describing the sort of astonishment at that moment of cultural encounter, right? Descriptions of slavery practices in the islands, right? And often these are contextualized, right? They're trying to make a point. This is the um, anti-slavery bugle, and so they're, they're bringing it in with a kind of abolitionist narrative on top of it, right? And this is another common feature of this, these excerpted bits of information, right? You can transport them and use them for different effects. Right? Or descriptions of the taboo and how the taboo operates, right? So they're rarely excerpting the novel as, as a novel or as a whole narrative, right? They're pulling out little scenes, little bits. All right, so I'm running low on time. I actually wrote that here because I knew I'd be running low on time at this point. <laughs> And I don't want to belabor my next point, but I do think we might read Moby Dick as a kind of explosion of the informational form. We might consider the voluminous extracts, which are the true beginning of the novel. I don't know why they're showing so uh, yeah. blurry there. I apologize for that. These are, for those of you who haven't read Moby Dick, which I mean, I'm assuming some people in here haven't, uh, these are all these you know, quotes about whales, basically, from uh, antiquity all the way through Melville's present. Or, or we might consider uh, the, for students, often painful, detailed descriptions of whales in the cetological chapters. There's a kind of piling up of information in Moby Dick that seems, in my mind, to echo the 19th century epistemology we see so clearly in reprinted newspaper literature. In one of my favorite passages in this novel, for instance, Ishmael describes being so desperate to preserve the, quote, valuable statistics of a whale skeleton that he encounters during tr his travels, that he has them tattooed on his right arm. Indeed, the way he describes his body as, a cr as crowded for space recalls to me those newspaper compositors trying to fit things into the daily editions, uh, attempting to make this diversity of selections fit the frame while leaving space for the poem, as, as uh, he is trying to leave space for the poem. In the first chapter of Moby Dick, Melville frames Ishmael's entire journey through the newspaper page. Ishmael's uh, Ishmael's journey is one headline, his voyage is one headline among other political and military news. However, this moment is telling to me in another way, because I think it marks a distinction between Moby Dick and, say, Typee. In short, Moby Dick is explicitly fiction, right? It's not a container of information that can be excerpted elsewhere in the same way filled in, as Redburn filled in the briefs, I'm oh, sorry, it is instead a container for information that can then be expounded, right? It, it pulls in information and expounds upon it, just as Redburn filled in the brief sentences under the shipping head in the passage with which I began this talk. The informational mode in Moby Dick, I think, and, and here I'm sort of reaching out on a limb, is uh, acquisitive and expository. Melville clearly shares his contemporaries' fascination with broad and diverse information streams, but he attempts, with greater and lesser success, to mold these streams into some coherent whole in Moby Dick, I think. All right, so conclusions. So in closing, I want to return briefly to Redburn, but a passage much further in the novel. Redburn is by this time a, a slightly more experienced sailor, and he has just described in great detail a malignant fever that had spread through the emigrants aboard the ship Highlander. And he goes through and he talks with all of these different people on the ship and they describe what's happening with them in, in quite, de quite uh, significant detail. Here, he reflects on the condensed form that an account of this sickness would take under the shipping head in a newspaper. So you can see the only account you obtain of such events is generally contained in a newspaper paragraph under the shipping head, 
There is the obituary of the destitute dead who die on the sea. They die like the billows that break on the shore and no more are heard or seen. But in the events thus merely initialized in the catalog of passing occurrences and but glanced at by the readers of news who are more taken up with paragraphs of fuller flavor, what a world of life and death, what a world of humanity and its woes lies shrunk into a three-worded sentence. In contrast to the 12 pages in the novel that he uses to describe this sickness, the narrator asserts that in the newspaper, this would all be contained in a paragraph that, newspaper, that readers would skim at best. He bemoans these summaries as not simply inadequate, but inhumane. What a world of life and death, what a world of humanity and its woes lies shrunk into a three-worded sentence. From the perspective of a sailor, the strange romantic charm of the shipping news that, that the shipping news cast before his journey has diminished. Rather than reading rich narratives into the newspaper's squibs, Redburn ascertains that the actual narratives are subsumed by them. Realities are shrunk, and I'm tempted to rhyme with sunk into the shipping news. But what I want to argue is that I think the two perspectives that Redburn offers in the news, the beginning and at this later point in the novel, are more complementary than antagonistic. When he is the potential subject of a squib in the shipping report, he becomes keenly aware of the medium's condensations and its misrepresentations of real life. Nevertheless, his early, earlier experience with the newspaper demonstrates how its condensed form could prompt flights of imagination and engagement from readers who found perhaps not the right narrative, but a narrative nonetheless in its pages. For the younger Redburn, it is not a single newspaper snippet that ultimately operates so powerfully on his mind. It is the iterative effect of pouring over tens or even hundreds of such notices in a day. So, in many ways, I think we can take these two stances as instructive for thinking about digital methodologies. This is my weird meta turn at the end, I apologize. The Melville Electronic Library resonates more, it seems, with Redburn's later take. Mel exemplifies the ways that digital tools can facilitate deep engagement with very specific corpora, allowing scholars to edit, encode, annotate, collate, and map text at minute levels of specificity, bringing readers rich digital editions of work by particular authors or groups such as Melville. As I've argued elsewhere, such work is arguably the longest standing and most influential thread of digital humanities history, particularly in literary studies. The preservation, annotation, and representation of historical literary works for the new medium of our time. By contrast, the Viral Text Project began with a relatively specific question, not about a particular author or topic, but instead with a question about text in the strict, strictest material sense. Can we identify frequently reprinted or otherwise duplicated passages unknown a priori from the OCR of digitized newspapers? I, I like stating it that way because it sounds so terrible that way. But here I think we echo Redburn's excited pouring over the shipping news in search of interesting narratives that he can extract. I call our work in Virotech's exploratory because our inquiry itself focuses on patterns of words in strings a framework which does not foreclose results by author, genre, or type of duplication. Approaching the archive not in search of particular text, authors, or keywords, but instead in search of textual patterns can open bibliographic inquiry to such surprising and even counterintuitive notions. Indeed, I would argue that uncovering such broad textual phenomenon is one of the unique potentials of the digitized archive. 
If 19th century circulation and reprinting were technologies of aggregation and enmeshed social relationships, we can now disambiguate and analyze them, albeit always partially and provisionally, through technologies like text mining and visualization. But the patterns and models of textuality revealed through computational means return us to the archive with new questions about reprinted texts, their circulation, and the wider systems of print culture. I mean, that's giving a talk like this, right? The, the whole point is that we then have to zoom in. We have to actually look at what we're finding, right? It's exploratory in that way. So I think it is both the expansive view across millions of periodical pages and the deep dive into particular textual depths that will provide the fullest pi possible picture of the 19th century's fast-changing print culture. Oh, and I have to do this. So these are my, uh -huh. oh. these are my collaborators, and uh, th these are the folks who have uh, funded, made this happen. We so. want to capture as much of this as possible um, on the tape. But uh, does anybody know if there's a mic in the room, a moving mic? And we don't know who who, who wired you. Oh, I, <coughs> oh. I, I just turn it up. But usually, it's we can we can get the conversation. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Okay. All right. Can I ask a question? Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, it's all right. It's okay. Um, yeah. the, the source for all of these is Chronicling America. Is that the one you've used primarily for Library of Congress? That's the one we've used primarily to this point. So we've used um, Chronicling America, and then that was our sort of test bed. And since then, we've been working to bring in new corpora because, um, I mean, it wasn't part of the talk today, but, I mean, uh, there are whole states that have nothing in Chronicling America. There are uh, lots of gaps in the coverage. There will always be gaps, but we are trying to redress them as best we can. Um, we've also, more recently, we've brought in the Making of America journals and magazines, which is why actually a few of those magazines might have appeared here. I think Scientific American was at least one of the examples here. Scientific American, I, I, I think I'm going to do a whole project on Scientific American at some point, because of all the magazines, it seems to be the one most closely aligned with the newspapers. It reprints both from and is reprinted from uh, more often than any of the other magazines thus far that we've looked at. Um, anyway, so we've done Making America, Chronicling America. We are, um, we've just signed a deal uh, to work with the American Periodical Series data. Um, it took about three years to get a commercial company to agree to let us work with their data. And I, I, I don't know that we're going to have much success with anyone else, but I'm happy that we're going to be able to work with that data soon. And then uh, my ACLS fellowship that I'm on next year is primarily uh, centered around gathering more corpora, both from the United States, but also from uh, Australia and the UK and uh, Europe. Um, and we've got uh, some interest from the Europeana group about using the European newspapers there, and, and, if, and then the British Library, uh, their newspapers, and, and things like that. So we're always looking for more corpora. But yes, we started with Chronicling America, and that's what we've worked with the most so far. How far back? Uh, Chronicle America really starts in the 1830s, but um, I should pull it up. We actually have a chart of their holdings over time, and basically, the later in the 19th century, you get the more holdings they have and the more sort of thorough they are. Um, when they release new batches, they tend to sort of push back more and more, but it, but it roughly starts in the 1830s. The bulk of the collection really gets going in the 18, late 1840s, 1850s. 
But again, you go to the 1870s and it's like exponentially larger in terms of how many, how many newspapers are there. That was my question, uh, what papers are in your database and what years you've already addressed. And I, I'm curious whether you've done anything with accessible archives, which has African-American papers, and then what's involved financially or otherwise to get into something like that? So we've had conversations with all of the major commercial <coughs> vendors. And the frustrating thing for me has been that none of them will just say no. <laughs> By which I mean we have these sort of weird circular conversations in which they say, that's a really interesting project. We'd love to see you use our data. Let's have a meeting in three months. And then we have a meeting, and then there's something. Anyway, I, I don't want to complain too much publicly on stage. But it's been, it's been an interesting pro uh, process. The only group that we have thus far made significant headway with is uh, the American Periodical Series data, which again, we've finally both signed on the dotted line, and Northeastern had to give them a chunk of money for what they call data preparation, although at what preparation they have to do, I don't know, because I think the data is the data. Um, but I'll be curious to see. Accessible Archives is one that we would love to work with. We haven't had any success sort of advancing that conversation. But for just the reason that you say, I mean, there are some abolitionist papers in Chronicling America. There are not many um, African-American papers in Chronicling America. It, it's a segment of the newspaper that we, we haven't done much with at all. How about something like um, anti-slavery bugle, which is in that big Ohio database, which I think you don't need to pay to get access in it. <coughs> is that whole kind of Ohio database, is that part of the, the chronicle that <coughs> you're using or related to that? I just swallowed this badly, sorry. <coughs> yeah, so <coughs> I had a text from the anti-slavery bugle. <coughs> and it was from Philadelphia or somewhere in Pennsylvania and not Salem, too, maybe earlier than I'm aware of. <clears throat> so the um, Chronicling America project is not a, a national project. It's a federation of state-level projects. Okay. And so most of those um, state uh, digitization projects, like the Ohio one, the California one, what happens is that they digitize, they put it into their state repository, and then it gets sucked into Chronicling America. So <clears throat> all of those Ohio newspapers are in Chronicling America. Uh, a paper that I've actually been working on, that I'm working on for a conference this summer, um, I'm attempting to do what I'm, what I'm referring to as a, a descriptive bibliography of a single digitized newspaper. <laughs> and so what that has involved is uh, find, getting as much information as I can um, from the sort of web interface about uh, when was this digitized, when was it contributed to Chronicle America, et cetera. And then trying to trace back, and I've actually I've learned that there is an archival TIFF of every newspaper in Chronicling America that you cannot access through the web, but that exists at the Library of Congress that if you get it, if you download it, has a lot of metadata that's not available through the web interface. For instance, it tells you what uh, reel it was scanned from. It tells you what... Um, uh, machine was used to do the scanning. It tells you what uh, software was used to do the OCR recognition. So I, I'm going really deep and nerdy on this thing, like really trying to figure like where does it come from? Because I think we, we haven't actually developed good methods for talking about that yet. Um, a few things I can say. Everything that's on Chronicle America was microfilmed first. There's nothing on here where they actually opened a scanner and put something on a scanner bed and scanned it. 
Um, part of that was economics. They were trying to do as much as they could with the money they had, and so it was easy to sort of use the microfilm. But that's a, a sort of material fact of the archive that shapes what the collection looks like. Um, something I've been very interested in sort of learning. So basically, what's in Chronicle America is based not on the scholarly priorities of the 90, 1990s or early 2000s, but based on the scholarly priorities of the 1940s and 50s. Mm -hmm. Because it's what they microfilmed. It then becomes what's digitized, right? Um, you, you mentioned before that all of this is American thus far, but you're interested in branching out at least in the transatlantic context. Yeah. Um, do you know what the state of newspapers in Great Britain <coughs> are that have been digitized? Are they mm. comparable to what you just described? Um, yeah. I mean, I see it. I guess the one of the publication I'm most familiar with is probably The Living Age. Yeah. It seems like every other thing is taken from, from the British publication. Yeah, I mean, that was, uh, I mean, not, not that that was surprising, but that's certainly one of the motivations for doing this transatlantic work is that so much is being reprinted from British newspapers. I mean, I'm an Americanist, so I'm also really interested to see what the commerce in the other direction looks like. Um, you know, Bob Nicholson has done some interesting work on American jokes circulating in Victorian newspapers. So it's clear that there are some things that are crossing in that direction as well. Um, I've seen some of the data from the British Library's newspapers, and it looks an awful lot like the data in Chronicling America. And I think, uh, honestly, that the uh, structures by which these things were digitized were quite similar. Um, one difference that you get with some of these collections is that they're, for their region, they can be more comprehensive. So one of the other collections we're hoping to bring in here is the Trove newspapers from Australia. And the interesting thing about Trove is it's sort of all the newspapers <laughs> from Australia in the 19th century. I mean, it has very few holes by contrast to the American data. Now, obviously, it's a smaller, not smaller. At the time, there are fewer newspapers being printed there, so it's a smaller sample set. But um, I don't know. I think that could be interesting to compare a very patchy corpus to a relatively complete corpus and see what kinds of differences that, that exposes. Yeah. Oh, sorry. One other thing I should say is that the UK uh, seems to have mostly done its digitization through corporate partners. Um, like the British Library newspapers we can get through this uh, partnership that we put together, but that will be another corporate partnership because I think it was, yeah, it was either Gale or Redex that did the digitization. Um, Australia, by contrast, is completely open access. But you know, thinking about holes here, like there are no Massachusetts newspapers in Chronicle America. Fortunately, Massachusetts doesn't matter to the 19th century. It's virtually, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I mean, the reason is that the major uh, archives in Massachusetts have worked with companies to, you know, it, they're in corporate databases for the most part. The American Antiquarian Society, you know, all of their newspapers were with um, EBSCO. Right? So um, um, Mike, I was curious about where you, you mentioned in Hawaii that the references to Taipei were a residence in the Marquesas. And what's interesting, that suggests to me that this data can also talk about publication circulations, because it suggests to me that mm -hmm. the books were coming from England, mm -hmm. uh, that yeah. it was the English version right, right. that made it to Hawaii, which really uh, signifies a different level of, uh, of, of transmission and circulation. Uh, uh, I, uh, I find that I find that very curious how uh, the very subtitle can connote other modes of circulation that are going on. Uh, so yeah. I just wanted to make that point, but I wanted to ask you about what you noticed. Um, you did you mentioned this tantalizing uh, sense that Lightning Rod Man was yeah. uh, was actually reprinted more than perhaps other novel texts. But I'm wondering uh, what other patterns you saw 
when you did look at how Melville did circulate, uh, yeah. because uh, we are very interested in Lightning Rod Man and other things. Yeah, I mean, we, so here's, I mean, we, we ran every, every Melville. So, I mean, the, the way that the, the algorithm itself is, is a kind of unstructured approach, right? It, it doesn't, you don't use the source text. But because, inevitably, when I talk to people about this, what they want to know is, well, what about this one text that I'm interested in, right? And, and that's interesting to me, actually, because I, I've been sort of adopting this very, like, let's run the thing and see what's there, like what was reprinted. It's, it's, a, it's a kind of a reverse approach. But anytime I say, here's our sort of prototype database, you know, the first thing someone does is sits down and types a keyword from the text that they want to know about, right? So we developed a, an alternate version of the algorithm that allows you to sort of specify a base text and just see, like, where does this text appear? And we did it for every Melville text. And most of them, we found almost nothing. And when I say that, I mean like one or two. Because we have the uh, making of America magazines, we would get the version that came in the magazine, but often nothing else. Um, the Lightning Rod Man, I think there were maybe seven or eight reprints of it in newspapers, um, which made it the biggest. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that, that, that's not a lot. I mean, it's. Anyway, um, I, 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 don't, I don't know where else to go with that. I mean, I was a bit disappointed, to be honest. Like, when John invited me, I was like, this is going to be awesome. We're going to talk about all these reprinted Melville texts, and I'm going to have a lot of fun. And then ultimately, uh, there wasn't a lot to talk about in terms of Melville reprinting. So I mean, I was glad to be able to explore these other kinds of maybe connections. But yeah. I did that to disappoint you. Yeah, well, <laughs> there you go. I mean, just to clarify, when you say every Melville text, did you like look up every poem oh. and battle well, the, I mean, the fortunate thing is we don't have to do every poem. We can just put in the text of battle pieces, and it will find it will find the regions so because doing it, like a full text search. Against, yeah, okay. because it's it's just looking for regions where there's enough kind of overlap. Because actually, the poems I thought was where we had the best shot, right. and we found virtually none. Mm -hmm. Now, again, that particular version of the algorithm where we use the base text is the thing that we developed the most recently. In fact, we developed it in part because I was giving this talk, and I needed to be able to do that. So maybe there's some bugs in there, but I, I don't think so, because we've run other texts and f that work really well. What so. were the other texts for you? What were the other texts that you used as source to compare? Oh, like uh, Fanny, Fern's, okay. Fanny Fern's columns, right? You run that, you find tons of reprints of Fanny Fern's columns, right? Um, uh, what were some of the others where we got wide reprinting? That's the one that stands out to me. But we, we, we used other texts where I really did know, like there's probably a lot of reprinting of this, and tended to find quite a few. Since literature scholars keep asking you, where's the interface that they can like, sort of the text they want to find out whether they're reprinted <laughs> other than just yeah. Plain America? It, yeah, yeah. It, so, so we, we, have, we have the database. It is online. Um, I've been very hesitant to talk about it, to release it publicly. And, and here's the reason, and perhaps this is my own anxieties showing, but it kind of looks like an archive. And I, I worry that scholars are going to think that it is an archive. And it is precisely not an archive, right? It is, it is our what I want to say, it's, our, it's the data that we've found, and it points back to the original archives. It's, it's very buggy. I, I'm happy to share it with you and others who are interested, but it's still quite buggy in terms of uh, its behavior. But it does allow you to search and browse and sort of see the clusters and get back to the chronically American newspapers where, they, where each instance uh, originates so that you can actually look at it in the newspaper. Um, and there's an awful lot of text in there, and I'm not going to have time to look at them all. So at some point, I need to be more public about where it, where it is. Um, yeah. 
I sh sorry, the other thing I should say that we had this idea going into the project that what, that, what we were going to do with that interface was we were going to have these clusters of reprinted text, and then we were going to go in there, and we were going to do all kinds of annotation, right? really like old-fashioned annotation. We were going to give them titles, because you've just got a cluster of like the same, but you know the titles changed as they moved around. Some of them are these little squibs without titles. So we're going to give them titles that scholars can use to sort of tell what they are. If there's an author, we're going to give an author. We're going to tag them based on their topics, et cetera, et cetera. And, and basically, it's just too damn big to do that. There's too many of them. And uh, I'm also learning that working with a computer scientist is very much about iteration, right? And so we're constantly sort of tinkering with the algorithm and getting a different sort of set of clusters that don't actually line up perfectly with the old clusters. And we can either sort of replace everything in the public database, or we can have these sort of versions that we spin out. But basically, what I'm realizing is that kind of hand annotation is never going to work for this project. It's just too big and sort of messy. And so now what we're talking about, we actually just proposed a, uh, a collaboration with a, another group to try and do some sort of like automatic genre detection. Um, the, the idea here was like it would be really useful to be able to kind of see that, like, I just want to look at all the poems, or I just want to look at all the temperance stuff, or I just. And so uh, if we can't do that by hand, which I'm increasingly convinced actually we can't, we don't have the money or the staff to do it by hand. It looks like we have a big team, but it's really, it's really not. I, I have those people for like five hours a week, right? It's not a big team. And so, um, yeah, so we're hoping to maybe use some methods to, at least in a, in a kind of broad way, be able to separate like the political stuff from the fiction, or, right? So people could browse it in a slightly, um, uh, what did I say? So people could browse it. Like at the moment, you still have to ultimately go in and, and search the clusters, right? And I want to I wanna have other ways of getting at it. Ryan, I, I really love this. This has been very stimulating. And one of the things that I, 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 I like a lot about your conclusion is that um, your, your idea and your approach is dealing with big data. And it, it, in digital humanities, that almost always comes with distant reading. And you don't do that. You, you take the big data and you find ways to burrow into it and find patterns. And, and that seems to be where you are. And you're sort of at a critical moment in, uh, as you just described it, in conceptualizing or reconceptualizing the project <clears throat> as something other than an archive. And I think we've struggled with that, well, or, or thought about it with Mel, too. And, um, Maybe the thing to do is to create ways that people can get into it and let and let them um, do the work. Hmm. Yeah. Let them look for patterns and have a way that they can extract their information and write about it. And, uh, and, yeah. and, and so that you have that combination, which I, I think you ended with, um, there is uh, the expansiveness of this, but then there's the deep dive. Right. And if there's some kind of way, some sort of mechanism whereby uh, people can, can take that deep dive and do the kind of scholarship that, that you demonstrated hmm. in finding different kinds of categories, and I think it would be, would be very exciting. How to do that, yeah. I think it, I mean, and, and, I, and I feel the same way about Mel, 
is that it's not ready yet for prime time. And, and we're going to be talking about that today. <laughs> um, but it's got to it's got to get out there so people yeah. can use it. And yeah. we have, you know, and and sometimes you have to let. Well, Kurt Fent and I have talked about this. Sometimes you have to let the baby out. Yeah. Well, so I mean, at the moment, it's not exactly hidden. Which is to say, if you go to the website, there's a link right to it on the website. What I haven't done is like trumpeted that fact um, <laughs> to people. Um, yeah, so I mean, I really like I really like Matt Jocker's um, framing of macroanalysis, and in part the reason that I like his framing of macroanalysis is that in that book he talks about the sort of necessity of moving between the macro lens and the micro lens, right? Um, and in fact, that sort of metaphor that he's trying to to draw between other fields is the idea that these things can actually be complementary as a, instead of opposed to one another, right? I mean, ultimately, like the basic question of viral text is a very distant reading kind of question, right? We did not come in there looking for any particular text. It was all about a meaningful pattern across this archive, right? But yeah, I mean, I think ultimately the, the, the payoff or the reward of that is, well then, okay, well, what did those patterns reveal? Like, What kinds of texts emerge? And what do they tell us that we didn't already know about, about print culture at the time? Um, Something that I don't want to that I don't want to lose here, but I'm going to nonetheless. Okay, yeah, sorry. Uh, in in the research you've done so far, have you been able to can you talk a little bit to particular networks of newspapers that you've identified that are are very syncretical with each other that do a lot of? Mm. I'm thinking back to some you know I, I know right originally you were kind of interested in the religious press a little bit. Yeah. Um, so. Anything you can say about particular clusters you've seen that tend to really do a lot of sharing of resources? Yeah, I'm going to... Um, yeah, so I mean, one of the other... I mean, I, I am... I come from a background where I was interested in religious periodicals primarily. This is another uh, lack that I'm excited to begin uh, making up as we bring in more corpora. Like the American Periodical Series data actually includes some religious publications, which there are not all that many in Chronicling America. But um, one of the things that I will s well, I mean, there are plenty, I should say, there's plenty of religious literature in these newspapers. There are not many of these that are explicitly like religiously affiliated, like Baptist papers. Most of these are politically affiliated. They're Republican papers or Whig papers or Democratic papers, right? Um, so, Taking uh, into account the many, many, many newspapers that we don't have, right? The interesting thing for me has been to look at some of the newspapers that do seem quite central, um, at least in the corpus that we've looked at. And um, the, this network graph, uh, so I, I should say, I have a paper coming out in American Literary History that focuses on the antebellum work that we did, which was the kind of first bit of work that we did. In part, we started with the antebellum just because it was a small little chunk that we could experiment with before we expanded. And in the antebellum data, right, the, the biggest newspapers in terms of just uh, papers printing things that lots of other papers are reprinting, right, are the Daily Tribune, the Rich, uh, Richmond Daily Dispatch, um, the Glasgow Weekly Times, which is in Missouri, Glasgow, Missouri, um, and, I mean, for me, probably the big surprise was the National Union, or the National Union in American, um, 
which, uh, at least in the pre-Civil War data, is probably the most central node, um, and just in terms of textual sharing. Of course, there's all kinds of caveats that go with that. Um, this makes sense to me, sort of in retrospect. I mean, one thing that I find with a lot of these visualizations, right, is you look at the visualization and you say, oh, of course. And you even get this idea, uh, I'm forgetting who wrote about this recently, you might remember, Wesley, that there's a sense that like we already knew that because it's so obvious, but actually I don't think we already knew that. I just think it's obvious, but we never thought of it before. <laughs> which, is that, which is that Nashville's right in the middle of the country, right? Literally, right in the middle of the country. And there are important train lines. I've done some work bringing Will Thomas's um, uh, uh, train, uh, train uh, line data into uh, like mapping, right? There are these really important train lines that go right through Nashville. It's right in between the west, which is you know Nebraska, and Kansas and the east. It's right in the middle, <laughs> north to south. So it makes a ton of sense. But I, I think if you talk to any sort of scholars of 19th century print, they're not going to say, well, Nashville was a really important center of print during the period. Right? We don't tend to think of it in that way. Um, one thing that was really fascinating to me is that more recently, when we expanded this to uh, the entire 19th century, the newspaper that emerges as even uh, stronger is the Wheeling Daily Intelligencer. Wheeling, Virginia, well, Wheeling, Virginia, and then Wheeling, West Virginia. And there, too, it, has, it seems to have a lot to do with transportation. It's right on the river. It's right on several major train lines. Um, again, it's pretty central in the country, right? And so it, it makes a lot of sense. But had I not actually done this kind of, like, let's use this reprinting to construct a network graph, I certainly never would have thought, well, we should really pay attention to the Wheeling Daily Intelligencer. Like, this would not have occurred to me. Um, so for me, a lot of the, I mean, actually going back to your point, John, a lot of the value of this kind of visualization is that it suggests new questions that take us back to the newspapers, right? Uh, I, I didn't talk about it, but these lines in between the newspapers are, are thicker or thinner depending on how many texts two newspapers share in common, right? Uh, and actually, this is simplified. So even these very thin graphs are several hundred shared reprints. The very thick graphs are tens of thousands of shared reprints. And this doesn't necessarily tell us that these newspapers were exchanging with one another, but when we see a very uh, strong connection, it's at least an indicator that there's something to look at here. And the, the example that I cite frequently is we had a paper in um, um, uh, Vermont, the, the Vermont Phoenix, uh, with a really strong connection to the Boonslick Times, which is in Missouri. <laughs> it's my favorite newspaper name of all of them, the Boonslick Times. There's this incredibly strong connection between them. And I was just very curious, because uh, in general, there's, you can sometimes suss out kind of regional connections or uh, political connections. But this one didn't seem to make any sense. So I asked Abby, I said, just dig into this. See if you can figure out what's going on, or if it's just an artifact of the data or what. And she spent about three or four days researching and uh, figured out that the editors of these two papers were brothers-in-law. <laughs> And that, in fact, the wife of one of the editors was sending her poetry to her brother to print in his paper. And clearly, they were just they were mailing their papers to each other because they were family, right? Um, but that's kind of what I mean, and that the, the big data suggests patterns. And sometimes we see a strong connection, and I say, hey, let's figure out what's going on, and we can't. We can't figure out if anything's going on. But sometimes we can. Um, I love what you said about how the papers became self-conscious about the reprinting, you could see the ways that they were commenting on their own reprinting, mm -hmm. and also taking um, the uh, errors of attribution as a subject for other mm. articles. 
So I wondered if along with your informational um, aesthetic, you also have an aesthetic of misinformation. Mm. And if we might think yeah. about that as something that's in Melville's, um, uh, uh, you know, purview as well. Yeah, the, the, the whale is a fish, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and, and was there the, the sense of, of the sort of irony or the comedy of these misattributions? Yeah. Is that part of the appeal? Uh, I mean, there is some of that. I mean, one thing I will say is that in our data and the research, we find every kind of commentary on this, which is to say we find editors defending this practice. We find editors uh, accusing other editors of doing too much selecting. We have other, uh, there's, I didn't bring it up, but you know, there's, um, in my article, I use several instances where editors talk about, you know, one editor talks about the, um, a good selection is far preferable to a bad editorial. Right. He, and so, I mean, in, in his in his uh, writing, he's basically saying, "I'm not a great writer, but I'm a good, um, I'm a savvy aggregator. Right. I'm, I'm a I'm a savvy editor. Right. And so, uh, but then you have there's a there's a funny poem that is no, not a poem. It's kind of a list, I guess, called "Editing a Paper" that's widely reprinted, and it's it's basically a list of complaints from editors. And they say, you know, if we select too much, people say that we're lazy and we don't write any of our own content. But if we don't give them any selections, they say that we're, uh, what is it, like, uh, that we're, we're not interesting enough. I'm, I'm going to forget it. But basically, it's like, damned if you do, damned yeah. if you don't, right? And there's a, a kind of constant stream of commentary about the process of selection. Um, and we've even noticed that there are some newspapers that the masthead includes a scissors and paste pot, right? Um, I mean, it's it's... And I mean, if you want to read about it, Ellen Gruber-Garvey's book is the best place to sort of start uh, to talk about this kind of selection and, and aggregation. Uh, we can start anywhere. It's fine. Sure. Okay. Well, I'm wondering about gaps. I mean, I, I'm thinking of um, Merton Seals' book on Melville reading and the incredible work he did to get hundreds of books that we know Melville wrote. But, you know, it also seems as if his wife gave away a lot of books uh, when he died that have disappeared. We don't know they exist. And mm -hmm. because he did such a great job, there's a tendency to feel that if it's not in seals, he didn't own it. Mm. So, yeah. and I think this database has the same problem without the Massachusetts, with all the stuff you don't have access to. So how do you warn your readers to mm -hmm. take what you can from this, but realize there are a lot of other things that you're not touching and that have to be left open? Yeah, I mean, I think this question is asked probably every time I talk about this work. Um, and it's, a, it's, a, it's an essential question for this kind of work. I mean, as you're pointing out, right, it's not as if archival work was like more complete and this is less complete. Uh, I think it's incomplete in a different way. Um, so I've, I've experimented with a few different things. Uh, in general, when I, often when I'm published on this, I'll print, uh, I'll have like a map of everywhere that a particular text was reprinted. And I actually, on that map, I use the modern uh, state shapes um, and shade them based on who has contributed to the archive from which I'm drawing and who has not. Yeah. But even that is a little mis, uh, misleading because like Chronicling America, the, the only newspapers from New York are from New York City. So like you've got the whole state of New York as if it's contributed, but actually Western New York hasn't contributed anything to Chronicling America yet. Um, but it's certainly something that's been sort of on my mind. Like, how do we, how do we estimate what we don't know, right? Another way that we've done it, um, Abby, uh, you, I keep bringing up Abby because basically this project does not exist without Abby Mullen. Um, 
Abby has been experimenting with developing scripts to comb through the newspapers and just pull out everywhere where they explicitly attribute something to another newspaper. And, and you can do this pretty well because there are, well, I'll, I'll, I'll qualify that in a moment, because there are these kind of rhetorical uh, structures by which they do this from the intelligencer, right? Um, now, the other thing, though, that this project has revealed is I, I suspect that they actually attribute maybe a third at best of the times that they reprint, because there's a ton of reprinted content with no attribution whatsoever. But one of the reasons why I asked Abby to do this was so that we could say, okay, can we estimate how much of the newspaper was reprinted? And then how many of those reprints have we actually identified, right? And I think, I think that it's a tiny fraction, to be quite honest, because of the, uh, but with that said, um, a few things. What we have found is that if we have identified something as widely reprinted, I can be really very confident that any other archive I go into, if I do the old-fashioned search for key phrases, I will find a heck of a lot more. Which is to say, I'm quite confident that our findings are strong signals of broader popularity. And this is really like, we've just done like, okay, we have 120 reprints of this. Go to American Periodical Series, go to Redex's America's Historical Newspapers, go to these others and search. And it has never happened that we have something widely reprinted and we search and we find no more. Right. Right? We always find a lot more, in fact. Um, so there are different ways of doing that. But I mean, I, I think I mean, this is the central problem of any historical research, right? We're always uh, uh, working with what we have and, and painfully aware of all the things we do not have. Yeah. Uh, such as where you might have continental materials or even, say, Pennsylvania yeah. German periodicals or German-American periodicals in St. Louis or yep. Spanish periodicals in the Southwest. Have you worked with that at all? So, the, I mean, that is in many ways the precise subject that I proposed under this ACLS fellowship <laughs> that I'll be on next year. Um, and, in fact, I, I proposed... Uh, I'll be spending a few months in Germany precisely because... Uh, German is the second largest newspaper in the United States during this period. The second largest newspaper language during this period. Uh, newspapers in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, uh, or sort of the Midwest, um, Texas, and North Carolina. <laughs> a lot of German newspapers. Uh, only a few of those are digitized and yet. And in fact, thinking again of this bibliographic project I'm doing, uh, it's very interesting to, well, interesting to me to look at the, uh, the documents, the grant proposals, where various states sort of lay out their plan for what they will digitize and when. And it seems like uh, non-English newspapers are the thing they do in the third round of funding. Mm. Right? The first round of funding, it's all about um, the major metropolitan areas. So we, we're going to digitize one or two newspapers from every major, metro, major, and they define major somehow, metropolitan area in our state. The second round of funding is we will digitize newspapers from counties where we have not digitized newspapers yet. So it's about filling in some holes from the first round of funding. And then the third round of funding, and only a few states have made it to the third round of funding. The third round of funding is we are going to digitize newspapers from underrepresented language communities, uh, we're, uh, underrepresented um, ethnic groups, etc. Right. So Pennsylvania has gotten to thir round three. Uh, who else? Louisiana has gotten to round three, and these are where we have some uh, non-English newspapers. So anyway, 
uh, what I'm going to be doing next year is I'm going to be getting newspapers from Australia, the UK, and Germany. And the German ones are what I'm particularly interested in. And actually, again, working with a computer scientist, it's all about thinking about iteration, right? He does not want to just do the same thing on, big, on, on more corpora, because that's no longer publishable for him, right? We need a new problem. And one of the really interesting new problems for him is can we detect reprinted text across languages? His, his training is in computational linguistics, right? That's, and uh, it does seem true that our, our reprint detection algorithm works quite well in other languages. There's a scholar um, who works on Islamic, uh, medieval Islamic texts, who's been using it to find quotations uh, from other scholars within medieval Islamic texts. Um, and we have run it on some, some small corpora of German newspapers, and it's clear that it can work with German and the really terrible OCR of German text because of the black letter font. Uh, the OCR in German text is even worse than the American text. Um, so anyway, this is what I'll be doing uh, next year. That's what I'll be focused on. Yeah. What do you not do? <laughs> <laughs> You've had your hand up a lot. <laughs> uh, this is sort of to come back to Melville, um, especially when you were describing the, the, the practices of newspaper editors and how they always have the scissor in hand. Yeah. You know, I, I keep thinking that that's not all that different than Melville's compositional method in many ways. Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, in addition to the scissors, he, he also had a penny encyclopedia mm -hmm. and would make, you know, free and active use of these sources. Yeah. Even in his prose, however it could. Um, is there any way to apply the technology that you've been using sort of in the opposite direction so that you could try and figure out what portions of any given work yeah. Yeah, that's precisely what this uh, scholar has been doing with these Islamic manuscripts, yeah. is uh, trying to figure out how, who they're quoting from and how often. So yes, I mean, that, that's a, a kind of obvious application that we could explore at some point, would be to really try and suss out. Now, of course, this is all going to be based on whether we have the source text also in the corpora, right? Because it's got to have them to find the, the duplication. Um, and actually, what you're saying about Melville's compositional practice is kind of what I was trying to get at, at the end when I was talking about what I think maybe a difference with Moby Dick is, which is to say it feels to me more like a kind of exploded newspaper rather than a source for the newspaper, <laughs> right? Because it's borrowing and pulling in from all these different places, yeah, in much the same way that these newspaper editors were. Yeah, and if you want to, I mean, another person who actually we do find a fair amount of reprinting with is some of Poe's stuff, right? We do find a fair amount of reprinting of, uh, you know, Valdemar in particular gets reprinted quite a bit. I love the idea of, of Melville's Moby Dick as a exploded pastiche of um, <laughs> newspaper. Yeah. Um, have you thought about commonplace books and scrapbooks? Yeah. I was with my students looking at the way Civil War scrapbooks at West Point and uh, later war scrapbooks collect the same and, and different newspaper articles. And um, it's just striking to me that the, the scissors and the pot of paste mm -hmm. are the same tools used by the small town compositor and largely women mm -hmm. at home. So you cross the public sphere into the domestic sphere. And you, in some yeah. ways you can't go there until the scrapbooks are digitized. Yeah. Um, but there is a relation. And it seems very commonplace to mm -hmm. use that word. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, 
you're right. It, like, we can't apply these methods because there are not a lot of digitized scrapbooks. But Ellen Gruber-Garvey, I keep coming back to Ellen's work, but um, her work on scrapbooks has been really influential in our thinking here. And in fact, one of, the, one of the things that I find so valuable about that work is that, okay, how do we know that these are not just filler? One of the reasons we know they're not just filler is because editors claim a kind of pride in their selection. But the other way we know that they're not just filler is that <coughs> these are the kinds of things that you find all through these scrapbooks, right? I mean, uh, uh, Ellen's work on scrapbooks is one of the ways that I know that actually readers value these kinds of texts, because you find these kinds of texts saved. Like, clearly they, they saw them as something more than ephemeral, right? Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I do think this is a kind of continuum of practice, uh, thinking about from the, from the newsroom to the scrapbook. Um, and again, that's, that's another kind of fluid textual boundary, like, you know, when it's in the scrapbook, whose is it, you know? Uh, particularly if it's, if it's uh, mixed up in various ways with other texts, so. I don't. And the justification in the DHPA for doing such a you know, sort of pet project or sort of a tiny little piece digitizing that, would you see a justification in taking one of the documents that you've seen with the students and digitizing it so that it could be unproduced? Would you see the time being beneficial? Oh, I mean, I, I, would, I, would love someone, I would love someone to take on such a project. <laughs> Oh, there was a, uh, so the question was, is anyone trying to digitize scrapbooks? And, and then the broader <coughs> question was, would I see a value in yeah, that so work? Yes, a value in, because I'm thinking about here you have already microfilmed and then OCR, you know, graphical, yeah. lots of newspapers. So when you think about one item in an archive and some class taking a project and digitizing it, what's the payoff for that amount of energy that goes into digitizing it using the algorithm that you have? Oh. I mean, for one, for one scrapbook, I, I mean, I don't know. The problem would be you wouldn't know if any of the stuff in it is going to line up until you did the digitization, right? I mean, if you have one scrapbook, you can just read it, right? What would be awesome would be if someone wanted to digitize a whole, a whole lot of scrapbooks. Um, because then, I mean, one of, the, one of the big things for me here is I, I actually think in many ways, what do I want to say? Like, the affordances of the... The, the digitized newspaper or scrapbook is not just a kind of transparent window into the artifact. And I actually think that we do ourselves a di we've done ourselves a disservice by primarily thinking of the digitized ar artifact as just a surrogate. And it's a terrible surrogate. Like, if you want it to be a surrogate, then you're, you're, you're doing a disservice to the thing, right? It's not going to have the physical, I mean, we know these things. We know that it doesn't smell right, or whatever you want to say, right? Um, <laughs> But it actually is true that it has affordances. It can have affordances that the physical ar artifact doesn't. And so like, my hobby horse lately is that we really need to be thinking about these digitized things as new additions, thinking bibliographically about them. They're not just the same as the thing that was digitized. They're a new thing. They have new limitations. They have new affordances, right? And for me, primarily, those new affordances have to do with these sorts of patterns, right? Um, but I actually think that we need to well, we. We is too big. I, I don't know that many people have yet really figured out what kinds of patterns would be salient, right? Reprinting is a kind of, I mean, in some ways, it's low-hanging fruit, right? It's a very clear textual pattern that the computer can find a lot more easily than a person can, right? The computer's really good at this. Um, and I don't want to do it. <laughs> I don't want to do the work that the computer is doing to, to find these things. Um, but yeah, so you're getting at a lot of things. Like, uh, if, 
I would love for someone to do a project on scrapbooks, but I mean, I. Well, the other affordance is that in the digitizing process, you're studying it. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad yeah. to look at Ellen's work that you're mentioning because one of the ways to get at probably the same sorts of findings she had in her critical study of archival scrapbooks, right, would be to the process of digitizing them and then deciding where those things came from and how to sure. encode them. If you weren't going to encode them with TEI, all of that is the study. So the person could be doing the study for a monograph on said number of archival sure. projects. Sure. No, that, that, that's absolutely true. I mean, the other thing I'd say that's coming out of this project for me, though, is I mean, I, I, I want to become a more forceful advocate for really big, sloppy digitization. Like, there's a real value in that kind of close, I mean, you know, Julia Flanders, one of my great, uh, great friend and colleague, and that kind of close annotation is, is wonderful for certain kinds of study. Um, but actually, like one of the things we're not, I don't think we're doing enough of is just getting text digital to do this kind of pattern recognition. And I see these not as competing things, as separate activities that, that allow you to do different kinds of things. And so uh, like this paper that I keep talking about that I'm giving this summer is like in defense of bad OCR. Because actually like there are patterns one can find with really bad OCR. And I think when we sort of insist on perfection for every kind of text, uh, we're, we're missing an opportunity. Um, our, we're, we're missing an awful lot of reprints because of bad OCR, but we're finding more than we would have found without some OCR, right? You mentioned uh, that textual reprinting is low hanging fruit because there, it's actually a, a, a text matching uh, search. Uh, uh, if you see then um, the borrowing of text as one uh, small traceable element of appropriation, how do you see um, larger modes of literary analysis, such as appropriation or influence studies, being uh, being opened up by access to information beyond newspapers and beyond mm -hmm. textual reprintings? Uh, where do you see yeah. the potential for that kind of tracing of circulation? Yeah, I mean, I think that comes back to the question that was asked before, right, about being able to trace uh, influence computationally, which I, I think there's a huge open field there. Right, which some of the methods we develop could be uh, refined toward. Right, that's not what they're intended for now. Although it's one of the ways in which we say we could do this in the future. Um, I, I mean, I, I, th I don't know. Actually, I think there's just a ton of low-hanging fruit. Right. I think the problem is that we, we're not actually terribly good. I'm still not terribly good at conceptualizing questions that are um, appropriate to the computer and would be revelatory in that way, right? Um, I feel like I'm still learning. <laughs> and actually, I mean, like a lot of the stuff you go online, like, you know, charting a word over time, it's, it's cool for about a second, right? And then it's like, and then you realize, like, all of the, the cultural context that that's missing and the ways in which it's, it's highly, you know, right? Um, there's got to be more we can do. There is more we can do. Um, but I think it's going to take, uh, Thinking together. I mean, that's why groups like this are so good, right? Because people maybe can be thinking together about these questions.